The Energy Gang is brought to you by Fluence, a global leader in battery-based energy storage technology and services. Fluence commercialized the first grid-connected battery systems in 2008, and they're now building multi-gigawatt fleets for customers globally today. And the Fluence team has championed energy storage for years as a cornerstone of our zero-carbon electric future. Learn more at FluenceEnergy.com and join them on their mission to transform the way we power our world. We're also brought to you by NorCal Controls. NorCal Controls is a total controls and monitoring solution provider for solar power plants. NorCal supports every phase of your project from turnkey design solutions to post-OEM enhancements, troubleshooting, and training. NorCal goes beyond the vendor mentality to partner with you in building solutions that are flexible, scalable, and completely customized to your current and future needs. Maintain, expand, and scale your solar system anytime, anywhere with confidence. Visit norcalcontrols.net to learn more. Green Tech Media Podcast. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I am Stephen Lacey. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. In this episode, what caused California's outages? Last week, short-term blackouts rolled across an overheated California as the grid operator said there was not enough power to meet demand. This wasn't supposed to happen again. Not after the Enron scandal. Not after 19 years of reforms. We have a very different grid now, and renewable skeptics, including President Trump, are seizing on the incident. What really happened? Then coal power in the U.S. plunged 30% in just the first half of the year. What about Asia? That's where 80% of coal gets burned now. What hope is there for a coal decline there? And last, the case for a clean energy transition just keeps making itself. When you look at new research on air pollution and combine it with cheap renewables, turns out the health benefits alone pay for our energy changeover. Joining me to talk about these topics are my co-hosts, Jigger Shah and Melissa Lott. Jigger Shah is the president of Generate Capital. Speaking of health benefits, how is your health today, Jigger? <laughs> I'm feeling a lot better with the... Uh... The cool air of Deep Creek Lake here in Maryland. Yeah, you have a new background behind you. Deep Creek Lake, huh? That's where you're vacationing? Yeah, you know, it's uh, still in Maryland, so I'm not violating any <laughs> quarantine issues with schools. I mean, it's crazy, right? You can't actually leave the state. You have to quarantine for 14 days if you leave the state before your kid can go to school. Dr. Melissa Lott is back with us. She's in Austin, Texas. She's uh, our guest co-host and a senior research scholar at the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. How are you? You seem to be enjoying the conversations. You're still back for a third week in a row. (laughs) Yeah, you haven't scared me off yet. So that's good. No, uh, seriously enjoying this a lot. Um, Also, we'll enjoy hearing Catherine back at the live event next week. So that will be fun. But things are good here in Austin. It's it's hot. I will admit to being very jealous of uh, one of my colleagues, Kirsten Smith, who's up in Vancouver right now. Uh, the pictures, uh, they just make me so jealous. <laughs> but it's good here in Austin. Well, it's brutal out there in California, for sure, uh, with wildfires raging in the north, um, a pandemic still gripping the state, and now blackouts last week. Um, it's a really dismal situation there in the state. So you may have all heard about the blackouts in California uh, last week. Now, let's be clear, we're not talking about days or even a week without power, like the thousands of people who went through this in the Midwest last week after the derecho or the folks on Long Island after 
the recent tropical storm. This was something else. These were small-scale, one-hour blackouts that the grid operator calls based on moment-to-moment inability to meet demand. It's been super hot all across the West, so California couldn't just call on Oregon or Arizona to import power. And the problem struck at the same time each day as the sun sank down below the horizon and solar power generation stopped or slowed. So that took several gigawatts along with it. Um, Even with an intense and large-scale heat wave, Was this the best California can do? The state has dramatically built out new capacity, much of it renewable since the energy crisis in 2001, but it's been closing a lot of gas plants. What role did both play? Let's start off with a perspective of the California grid operator. Uh, Let's hear a clip from Severin Bornstein, who is on the CAISO board of directors. He's also uh, a faculty director at the Energy Institute at the UC Berkeley Haas Business School. Here he is talking on AirTalk from KPCC. We have gone down the road of putting more and more renewables on the grid and have not taken as seriously as we need to the constraints on those uh, renewables. The fact that they can disappear, well, they do disappear when the sun goes down, the solar, but that the wind can suddenly stop blowing, which is what happened Saturday, and caused what we thought was going to be an okay but close uh, night to actually require rolling blackouts. So we really need to look in a much more refined way at what can we count on from these renewables and figure out how we can fill in when they're not there. So this is a uh, slightly technical version of what people like President Trump are claiming on Twitter, uh, that Democrats are using energy, green energy to bring down the grid in your way of life. Now, to be clear, Severin Bornstein is not claiming that, but I think he's channeling an argument that a lot of people who are skeptical of renewables are making, which is the more renewables we put on the grid, the more these blackouts are going to happen. Um, So let's talk about the actual nuance of what happened in California. Melissa, to the best of our understanding, what did happen? Yeah, so to what we understand right now, and I'd like to just for a moment back up and say, we are going to, it's going to be a while before we know exactly what happened. We need to do a full postmortem of this to understand really, you know, what went wrong where for this, you know, type of situation to occur. But effectively, like last Friday, around 630 in the evening, uh, we had temperatures in the state sitting at about 10 to 20 degrees above normal. It was really hot. Wildfires are raging in California. Terrible if you've been following that in the news. Um, Really feel for folks out there right now. And it seemed like this call to actually have, you know, rolling blackouts to have demand response was it came after two power plants shut down. Um, so we saw two natural gas plants go offline. And Cal ISO has specifically cited a lack of access to electricity that's imported from outside of California. So if for those who have been following it, we've seen that this wasn't a localized heat wave. So it was really hot in California, but it was really hot through the region. So California has been increasingly, you know, relying on these imports. And they just didn't have them when they needed them. This continued into Saturday. And, you know, on Saturday, it was instead of two natural gas plants tripping offline, it was a natural gas plant and a wind farm that went offline that lost power. And so again, you know, we're seeing reserves that, you know, were standing in the in the teens going down to below 10%. And I think when they called the stage three blackout on Saturday night, reserves were down to about 8.9%, which is an interesting number to discuss, because there's been some push back and forth as to whether or not, you know, we're, was Cal ISO being too conservative? Um, were they being overly cautious? Or were they, you know, responding to what they saw as a big and immediate issue in the system? So this is a confluence of factors. Uh, fossil fuel plants, renewables plants, 
the lack of imports from out of state and an extreme heat wave. Jigger, how do we think about each of these factors? Was there one that played a bigger role? Again, we don't fully know yet, but what do you think? Well, I I think it's important for us to have some perspective here. I think we've talked for many years here on this podcast that the way in which our electricity grid operates has to change, right? And so when you have variable renewable resources, right, they are entirely predictable, right? So the sun stops shining in a very predictable way. And so it's not like they were surprised by the fact that the solar ramped down in the afternoon. And so when you think about uh, you know, the tools necessary to meet these challenges. California has been filling that gap with imports. It is natural that when a heat wave goes throughout the West Coast, that those imports are generally going to be less stable in terms of whether they're available on these types of emergency days. And so the way that people really like to solve these problems is saying, we should overpay people to have capacity just sitting there that might be called 27 hours a year, but may not be, right? And so in 2017, the Los Angeles, the LA Times did a huge piece on, you know, how the Public Service Commission was basically just a rubber stamp for new power plants, particularly new natural gas plants. I think there's a lot of folks who said, hey, wait a second, why are we overpaying for all this capacity when we don't need it? In fact, you know, California has very low wholesale power prices most of the year and has already curtailed 6% of all of the solar power produced this year, right? And so you're in a situation where the grid is running in a radically different way and grid operators are running it like they did in 2001 when Enron was still in control. And so the question now becomes, what tools does the California ISO and the utilities need to have in place to be able to deal with this new grid. And, you know, did the Public Service Commission fall asleep at the switch in terms of making sure those tools were available for situations like this? So there were some tools that were eventually deployed, including demand response, and I want to talk about those. But I'm confused here, Melissa. If California has overbuilt capacity, gas-fired capacity, uh, and and from what we can tell, there was still an 8% res- reserve margin when the grid operator triggered these blackouts. What happened here? Yeah, so this is something that's being, uh, I think the, the headline of the New York Times is like, we're perplexed. I mean, that that's my paraphrase of it, but we're perplexed. Like, if we look at the numbers and we look at where capacity was available, it's like, why wasn't it deployed in different ways? And I... I, I mean, honestly, Jigger, I don't know if you have more clarity into it. Like, what on earth went wrong and why didn't we have resources in place? I mean, one thing that I come back to is is this division of responsibility. So there's a regulatory structure that's in California where you've got like CalISO actually operating the system, but then you've got the PUC being responsible for making sure that we have the resources we need. And is it just a matter of like communication went wrong? Like, I'm not, I'm not sure. I, in general, find that when... California operates its grid, or frankly, its planning, it is very top-down in nature. So when you think about the way ERCOT works in Texas, um, anyone who has a 400-kilowatt natural gas generator behind the meter, HEB has hundreds of them, um, can participate in the wholesale market. That's not true in California. So they have two to three gigawatts of natural gas generators and diesel generators that have been installed largely in the last like six years because of public safety shutoffs and other things. And they can't participate. Now, they all they are participating now because the governor has sort of said, 
you know, all bets are off. Ships can start participating. This group can participate. That group can participate. And you've had a lot of folks since Saturday just turn up their thermostat because, you know, Californians like to respond to governor requests. But when you think about the tools that California ISO thought it had, my sense is it thought it was boxed in. It thought that when these two natural gas plants shut down unexpectedly, that they had no choice but to, you know, pull the the last resort. And, you know, and, in, and, you know, the one other thing I want to make sure we focus on is the people who lost power are largely black and brown people. And they had, you know, unbearable heat. Um, and where they live is about 15 degrees warmer than places that have a lot of green space and trees and other things. And so it was particularly unfortunate for those populations who had to be blacked out for three or four hours. Um, and so my sense is, is that this is really a confidence problem. The California ISO just did not believe that it had the confidence that it could keep the grid stable. And as many of us know, if the entire grid goes down, it is a huge effort to turn it back on. It is not something that's easy to turn back on. And so if you don't feel confident that you have these other tools to draw on, then you black people out. Yeah, and I want to touch on this equity issue like a little bit harder. There was this great um, Twitter thread that I, I retweeted, great from a technical perspective, because it was about the operation of this gentleman's power wall and what it was actually doing as all these blackouts happened and, and how he was able to operate his home um, largely off the grid. He was able to effectively take his, you know, of course, he's still connected, but he was able to power all of his needs with his own on-site generation and storage. And so not only are these disadvantaged communities in places that are hotter, but they are much less likely to have on-site batteries in their you know, garage to actually be able to make sure that their air conditioner can run, that their refrigerator can stay plugged in, et cetera. So this is unhealthy for everyone, but it's particularly unhealthy for disadvantaged communities. And this is a really important point. And it's something where as we go forward and we start thinking about, okay, how do we pay for reliability? How do we make sure this doesn't happen again? And how do we do it in such a way that it's not one of those um, okay, if you have money, you'll be fine. You can have reliability, and that's known as your, you know, battery in your garage. But if you don't have money, uh, you just have to suffer through these these waves of blackouts. Um, how do we make this an equitable kind of situation as we do this energy transition to zero carbon power? Yeah, that Twitter thread came from Ed Burgess, who's a director at Strategen Consulting, mm -hmm. and he 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 talked about how his power wall was automatically operating. And on Saturday, when it looked like there might be more outages, the power wall. Um, went into self-power mode, um, and it it started drawing power from the grid um, in order to to be able to power his home in the case of an outage. And so it actually makes the problem worse uh, potentially. And so he he said that he shifted it, but uh, if he hadn't been monitoring it, he changed the settings. But he could imagine that a lot of other people aren't even really monitoring it and that that that, that could cause a major problem when you have these batteries at scale. Um, so it's both a, um, you know, a grid management and technology issue and an, an equity issue. If you have people who can afford these batteries who are like making the problem worse, um, it, you know, it, it causes major problems down the road for folks who can't, you know, afford to fix the situation for themselves. But I think to be clear, um the batteries are not making the problem worse. The demand response market in California is making the problem worse, right? If Tesla were told that in an event like this, these batteries could sell power into the grid at $900 a megawatt hour, 
and get paid to do that, well, then it would actually develop an algorithm by which to be able to do that. But instead, what Tesla has been told is that the state of California doesn't love demand response. We've underfunded it for years. We have a total program size of $27 million. And therefore, people who buy these batteries should make sure they protect their own property first, because we are not going to pay you to help be part of a broader system within um, the state of California, right? We're not going to pay you to turn up your thermostat. We're not going to pay you to, you know, turn on your natural gas backup generator. We're not going to pay you for any of these services that ERCOT has been doing for five plus years. And ERCOT, remember, has lower reserve margins than, you know, what California experienced on Friday. And so when you think about sort of how this works. It is working exactly as the top-down structure in California designed it to work. And so if they want other outcomes, they should they should say that they want different outcomes. Yeah. I mean, just like your mobile phone or social media, like the batteries on their own are neither good nor bad. It's how you use them and what kind of regulatory framework you have around them. So certainly the opposite could be true. I mean, these batteries could be doing a lot to be helping the grid. So Jigger mentioned Texas. You're there in Texas, Melissa. Uh, why is Texas able to manage the grid better with a lot of wind power during heat waves um, with a much lower reserve margin. Is there something fundamentally different about Texas, as, as Jigger explained? Well, I mean, Jigger's touched on some of the market and regulatory differences. I mean, in Texas, when we say Texas, we sometimes use it as interchangeable with ERCOT, the Texas grid, which, of course, is something like 80, 82 percent of, of overall electricity demand in Texas. And, you know, a couple of different things here. So we we do have issues on our grid sometimes. They typically happen in winter um, when we see that, you know, we see fossil fuel power plants tripping offline because it gets really cold and that causes some issues. And and you'll see that in the news. But, you know, in the summer, we we are largely used to these heat waves. Um, we have figured out how to manage them. And we also have gone about the integration of renewables in a different way than in California. So uh, going back to Jigger's point, I think it's right on with saying that the demand response market in California is not as mature as one would hope it would be in this situation. And, you know, when I look at that Tesla Powerwall with, you know, Ed's Powerwall example that he was talking about on Twitter, it comes down to me with saying, you know, why wasn't there more centralized control and the ability for there to be centralized control on this system? So he was watching it. Um, and so he was able to respond. And it's saying, okay, you know, there's that example of is it called Ohm Connect um, in California that manages a fleet of like 150,000 residential customers? I believe it's about 50,000 home devices. And they're saying, hey, we're going to effectively be 150 megawatt peak capacity power plant. Like that's what we're going to do. And we're going to offer our services and we're going to get paid for it. In their case, they actually roll that savings into the customers who they're managing. So um, they were looking, I think the number was looking at paying out to their customers 50 to 100 bucks, you know, on Friday by having this response. So there's that direct mechanism that Jigger is talking about, but it's a very limited example. And so, you know, why, how, why doesn't California have mechanisms in place to say, okay, all power walls, just like we do with air conditioners in Texas, let us cycle you off for 20 minutes or an hour when we need some of that. We'll give you money for that. I mean, here in Austin, I just sign up for the program. It's super easy. And if I'm getting too hot, if it's becoming dangerous for me and my situation, I can just override it. Um, but Typically, I won't. I'm probably not home if it wasn't COVID times. Um, but also, you know, I'm, I'm not paying attention in that 20 minutes. It may do a ton for the grid, but it doesn't do too much for me at home, actually. I don't really notice it most of the time. Um, so these are just some, some differences we're seeing. And I feel like in California's case, they've gone headfirst at renewables. They've gone headfirst at solar. And that's great by a lot of metrics. But they 
kind of, they ran before they could walk in a lot of ways. We're going to learn a ton from them as a result of it. Um, unfortunately, people are in a bad place um, because they started running too early, but they don't have demand response, really a mature system in place. They don't have these firm capacity resources. They've been moving away from them, as, we, as we've already mentioned. So when crises like this happen, Jigger, it exposes problems that may be obvious to some people, but become more obvious to many more people. So the question is like, what the hell in in California? Like, what? Why don't they have more? What, what I mean, you would think in a progressive state like California, why don't they have better mechanisms to for uh, like more technological demand response? Turns out this week we haven't seen rolling blackouts because people have reduced their consumption, and you have some remote shutoffs of air conditioners. You have some people who are just manually reducing their uh, air conditioning load because of alerts from the utilities or from Kaiso but like there's it's a really low tech response so what's what's the solution why is California failed so badly in this so the nanny state which is California is just as bad as full libertarianism right we talked about this last year during the public safety shutoffs if you're a town or a city in northern California and you want to protect yourself from public safety shutoffs you're not allowed to build a microgrid without 17 layers of permission, right? If you own a microgrid, you're not allowed to bid that capacity into the Kaiso market and actually get paid for that capacity if and when the grid needs it, right? Like if you want to do a resource adequacy pilot, unless you're sexy like Solar Plus Storage, East Bay Community Association won't actually work with you. I talked to East Bay and they said, we will never allow natural gas generators as part of our demand response program for resource adequacy in our territory. And I said, but you represent all the customers there. They said, well, yeah, but they can put in their own natural gas generator, but we're not going to give them access to the resource adequacy money that we control. The only people that are going to get that money are people who have Solar Plus Storage. Uh, backups, because that's what we deem as a nanny state to be the right approach, right? And this is the challenge. You want programs that are technology agnostic. You want programs that say, if you provide this service, we will pay you this money. You don't want programs where everyone says, this is a better technology than that. This is a better approach than that. You want to set up rules by which you actually achieve decarbonization and the outcomes that you want to achieve, but you don't actually prescribe exactly how you do it. When you prescribe exactly how you do it, you get technologies that are in favor and technologies that are not. I'll give you an example. Firm resources matters. 5% of all of the electricity in California comes from geothermal. Guess what hasn't happened in the last 10 years? New geothermal contracts, right? Biomass plants. There are eight biomass plants in in California. The PG&E and Southern California Edison tree trimmers desperately want them open, but they won't pay the 10 cents a kilowatt hour it'll cost to actually keep them open. Guess what? They're firm power, right? And so because we actually focus only on this levelized cost of energy from solar and wind, all the firm power resources have not been developed and they've actively been taken offline. Forget about natural gas, right? Which we can all argue about in terms of methane emissions, all that kind of stuff. Even waste biomass facilities have been systematically shut down. And all of that stuff has now been put into landfills where the methane will come off of rotting wood and like go into the atmosphere. So we have all sorts of negative consequences from California's top-down regulation. Yeah, and I just want to echo this point that Jigger's making around the hyper-focus on levelized cost of electricity, LCOE. It's interesting. It's a good metric for some things, but 
I see it frequently being overused. And we compare, we say, oh, a solar panel can give me you know, this price per kilowatt hour, and that's more or less than a firm dispatchable resource. And I'm like, these are not apples and apples. They may both be fruit, but they're, they're not the same thing. And you need a variety. And if you don't, what ends up happening is you go to zero carbon power is it gets extremely expensive. And maybe you're all right for like the first 50, 60% of the transition, but that last 10, 20, 40% is going to be extremely expensive. And California is zero exception in this. The Research is very clear on this point. If you move away from firm dispatchable things, you make the entire transition extremely expensive and a very bumpy road. So last question, which is the framing of this issue. I have seen a a lot of very solid and well-meaning Twitter threads about the need to manage uh, a high renewables grid better and pointing out the problems with California. But what I have seen is that they're focusing on renewables, which of course we need to, but we saw two major natural gas plants trip offline and no one's talking about how we need to manage natural gas plants better or so like we we know when this when the sun's going to set the wind stopped blowing on saturday and that was a sudden thing that happened yes but like these two major natural gas plants tripped online law offline so why aren't we talking about the vulnerabilities of natural gas plants yeah, I mean, when these kinds of things occur, it's clearly a Rorschach test, yep. right? <laughs> like, like as soon as like you see it, you're like, wait, wh- where's my talking point? <laughs> like, God damn it! Like, you know, Diablo Canyon, right? Like songs, you know, where's yeah. the nuclear plants, right? I mean, and everyone basically goes back to their corners and talks about their talking points. And look, I think that when it comes to these kinds of things. I I have to like keep repeating myself. This is about making sure that we have the tools necessary to live in a chaotic world. When climate change um, gets worse, and it's already getting worse in California, which has tons of wildfires right now, has tons of other things going on right now, things will be less predictable, right? I mean, even the wind, by the way, we knew a half an hour before the wind shut off that it was shutting off. So I think the notion that like, the wind power just immediately tripped off and nobody knew it was happening it was ridiculous. And so we have tools by which to know when this is going to occur, uh, at least a half an hour before that, so then you can ramp up other resources. So I think that, you know, as I said on Twitter and other places, people need to like, not rush to judgment. I think Melissa is absolutely right that we have to wait for the postmortem to see exactly what happened here. But I do think that we should all be able to agree that California ISO and the PUC need to work together to make sure that we have a diversity of tools so that when this occurs again, there's enough tools in the toolbox to be able to solve the problem without, you know, creating blackouts for, for you know, uh, communities of color. Yeah, and I think when you talk about these diversity of tools, it means considering a diversity of technologies. So, uh, Jigger, Stephen, you've both heard me speak about being technology agnostic um, far too much. But no, it can't be overspoken about because it's one of those things where when you pick winners of a few certain technologies, you get some shiny projects that are great. Um, you get some momentum, which is great. But you end up in a situation where you're not balancing the overall system. And balance is key in the power system. We are constantly trying to balance supply and demand. We have to do it nearly instantaneously. Um, how do we do that? We need a variety of tools because the more tools we have, the less risk we have. Um, and when we're already hobbling ourselves by taking tools out of our toolbox, it, it stuff's going to go wrong. Like it will. It just is a matter of when. We're going to take a short pause here to talk about our supporters of the show. Uh, clearly, you know, we could use a little bit more battery storage here during times of crisis on the grid and. 
That's what Fluence is trying to do. We're brought to you by Fluence. Energy storage has reached an inflection point in market adoption. That's because it's getting much more cost effective. It helps with the deployment of renewables and it can help reduce emissions. So the energy storage era is arriving and Fluence is ready for it. You've got 12 years of experience and decades of energy sector knowledge. And Fluence is your trusted partner for the most complicated energy storage projects, pairing intimate market knowledge with cutting-edge technology and operational services. Scale from 1 megawatt to gigawatt-sized deployments with solutions tailored to your specific use case and application. Visit FluenceEnergy.com today to learn more. We're also brought to you by NorCal Controls. NorCal begins every project with a simple question. What approach best serves the customer? And it comes from the NorCal way, which offers a dedicated team, proven engineering excellence, and customizable solar solutions based on open architecture hardware and software. Uh, Because they're based on open architecture, NorCal systems are designed to be easy to maintain, test, and troubleshoot. As the only system integrator in solar PV that comes from a traditional power generation background, NorCal has earned a reputation as the strongest in controls. To learn more, visit norcalcontrols.net. For the first time ever, global coal-fired capacity has gone down. That's great, right? Because... For years, every six months has brought another 25 gigawatts of new coal-fired generation capacity online on average. But let's focus it on Asia, where nearly all coal is burned now, or you know, the vast majority of coal is burned now. What's the picture there? China is far and away the number one burner of coal. India is the distant second. Uh, yet both countries are also rapidly installing wind and solar. So what's the net? Uh, and, and if solar and wind are so cheap in those countries, why are they still building a bunch of coal? Both giants also operate beyond their own borders, and China's developing coal mines in Pakistan, and the Indian industrial giant Adani is opening a coal mine in Australia that's twice as large as any mine in that country yet. So... Uh, Yes, coal generation is going down, but there is still a lot of activity here, much of it in Asia. So what's going on? Melissa, let's turn to China first. China completed 11 gigawatts of new coal capacity in just the first half of this year. Its coal plants are already really underused, as far as I can tell, uh, you know, based on the reporting that I've read. So what's going on there? Why are they building so much coal? Yeah, so stepping back to the global picture just really briefly, there's something like 2 million megawatts of coal operating in the world, just around that number. Um, The Carbon Brief, if you haven't already checked it out, has a super interesting map where you can zoom in and you can say, okay, what do the trends look like? Um, So if you look at that map, you can see that we have a lot of plants closing in North America and Europe, especially Western Europe, uh, where you have countries like the UK and France, like transitioning completely away from coal for power generation. But in Asia and and Southeastern Africa, it's just booming. You've got lots in operation. You've got many new plants and a bunch of stuff under construction or planned. China is home to just under half of the global operating coal capacity. Um, and it's it, when you're sitting there and you're going, I've got just under a million megawatts of coal capacity with another 100,000 under construction, another 100,000 plus planned. I mean, that's that's a big deal. And what decisions China make will have repercussions throughout the world in terms of what we're able to do with emissions. I mean, full stop. If you care about emissions, you care about China. And if you care about power emissions, you care about China. So you know, overall, we did see that decline in the first six month period in 2020, you know, in terms of coal fire generation capacity, but China actually added another 50 something gigawatts of capacity. Um, It's 
China, like coal is not dead in China. Coal is not dead in Southeast Asia. And we see a lot of different dynamics with this. And while generation may be down, um, coal is still a good resource. It's a good domestic resource. It's a good, you know, thing that they can use to provide reliable electricity to the people in their country, many of whom still don't have energy access, still don't have access to clean modern energy systems. Um, one of the reasons, like y'all know that I used to work in Asia before I came to Columbia University. And Part of the reason I did that is because when I was at the International Energy Agency and every scenario we did, the sensitivity that mattered is what we assumed for Southeast Asia, including China. Like that is what mattered. And I said, you know, if I'm going to be working in this business for much longer, I, I need to go there and actually understand what the heck is going on. I need to go into Indonesia and speak to the government there and understand why are they continuing to use coal, even though, you know, their capital city is sinking. <laughs> you know, so it's not that climate change isn't real. It's they're making different decisions. Um, so in China, you mentioned that China is not only, you know, has not only built and continues to build a lot of plants in their country, they're continuing to fund coal-fired power plants in other countries. So you mentioned Pakistan. Um, it's it's funding a lot of stuff with its Belt and Road Initiative. And the bottom line is, in terms of this look, like short-term decrease in generation, we're seeing a lot of mixed signals that are coming from requirements to actually get renewables onto the system. Because if you guys have followed that, China's had a massive renewables build out, a lot of which wasn't tied to the grid for a while, or then it was, and it was being curtailed. And now there's increasing pressure to actually get those electrons onto the system to improve air pollution, et cetera. And so that's affecting coal plants. But that does not mean that coal is going away in China. That does not mean that they're not continuing to invest. And I would say one key difference that I see in conversations and when I'm speaking to David Sandalo and Philip Benoit at the center who focus on these areas and these issues, the difference comes down to how we look at the economics of coal. So we can do this levelized cost of electricity that we spoke about in the first part of the show. Um, we can talk about how much cheaper renewables are than coal. But at the end of the day, we're talking about state-owned enterprises. We're talking about different financial models, different calculations. And coal still makes sense in a lot of this region. Jigger, what about India? So... If we remember back to when Narendra Modi came into office, he talked a lot about solar. He was like, we're going to electrify the country. We're going to get solar systems to everybody who needs one. It was a very hopeful message. He engaged in global climate talks. And now he's saying, uh, well, we want to bring coal out of lockdown. Now coal is going to be central to India's pandemic economic response. Uh, I mean, he's always had an emphasis on coal, but... That's accelerated. Um, and despite a lot of the, you know, macroeconomic analyses showing that solar and wind are cheaper than building new coal plants in India, coal is still central. So what's going on there? Yeah, India is a much different case than China, right? So, um, you know, over 50% of all new capacity additions for the last few years from India has come from uh, renewable energy. So it's not like... Um, they're building a lot of new coal. In fact, in the last five years, I think they built about 2,000 megawatts of net new coal, net of um, of retirements. And so India is not growing its coal fleet, even though it keeps announcing 40 new coal plants. None of them seem to get built. Um, and India is oversupplied uh, by coal uh, today, right? So it's got about 20% excess uh, coal capacity in terms of uh, fuel capacity. The one thing I would say is having um, worked extensively in Southeast Asia, particularly in working closely um, with Modi when he was uh, chief minister of Gujarat, like I think um, the biggest challenge in Southeast Asia is, and this has been said to me explicitly by governments in Sri Lanka, India, Myanmar, Mongolia, is that like 
the easiest way to siphon money from the power sector is coal. There is no easier way to get kickbacks than coal. And it's one of the biggest problems. Um, like if you look in Sri Lanka, um, the sitting prime minister's like family got the contract to build the coal import terminal, which then, of course, became not cost effective. And the entire World Bank investment was shut down and written down to zero recently. The same thing's true with the ESCOM plants in South, Af- South Africa. You have this issue where uh, the capital expense of a plant um, is is very uh, much scrutinized, right? So no one steals money during the construction of a plant. Where they steal money is in the maintenance contracts, in the fuel supply contracts, in the transport contracts. That's how like their cousin gets a contract, this person gets a contract. And it's hugely problematic because in these in these places, civil servants don't get paid much. And so the way that they make money is through these bribes. And it's a huge problem because many people in these countries are still working and living on three, four dollars a day. And these are huge projects with large dollars going through them. The last point I'd make is that in India, because of campaign campaign finance reform and all that stuff, you really can't run an administration without a very wealthy family behind you. And in Modi's case, his wealthy family behind him is the Adanis. And so in general, right, I think Modi has his heart in the right place, but the Adanis like have a sprawling business, including one of the world's largest renewable energy businesses. And it's one of those things where, you know, you can't bite the hand that feeds you. And so it's a complicated mess. So Jigar, I've got a question for you real quick about India, um, because you spend so much time looking at it. I've been following this self-reliant India plan um, with these 40 new coal fields. And, you know, from what everyone's talking about, I mean, these 40 new coal fields will be in some of India's most ecologically sensitive forests, um, and they're opening them up to commercial mining. Um, And it seems to be the push of saying, look, you know, we need to develop, we need to have jobs, we need to have money, so we're going to do this. And the forest, you know, forget about it, like we're going to build this. I mean, do you have any perspectives on that? I mean, about how likely it is to go forward and and what is, is driving it? The good thing about India is that it's a messy democracy. And so my sense is you will literally have hundreds of thousands of people that squat on these lands and make it almost impossible to get these things done. Hmm. Um, I don't know that that's going to happen, but you find that like in India, they save themselves from the worst instincts in these areas through uh, civil disobedience. And so my sense is this will be no different. But like I posted this on my LinkedIn page and I got like, hundreds of thousands of views and tons of my friends from India going like this embarrasses us too. Like we're not going to stand for this. And so I'm hoping that like this was just a press release to make the Adanis happy. And then like, it's actually not going to get implemented. That's interesting. I was reading about how like 80% of the blocks are home to these indigenous communities in thick forest. So thanks. That's interesting. And Melissa, what about Japan? The post Fukushima era has brought a ton of new coal development in Japan. Why Why so many new coal plants planned there? Yeah, I mean, so Japan's interesting. I, I mean, I lived in Tokyo before I came back to the United States um, and was working at the Asia Pacific Energy Research Center. And it's interesting because people focus a lot on coal in the context of Fukushima. So Fukushima in 2011 left the country in a tough place with this nuclear program. So it essentially was shut down. Generation dropped from around a third of the generation mix to like 3%. I mean, it was just, it was a bad situation. Um, and 
but let's back up from Fukushima and just to the fundamentals of Japan. Japan is an energy poor country reliant on imports for the bulk of its energy needs. So right now, when you look at the coal picture in Japan, Mati and others are saying, well, you know, we're going to build these new super efficient coal plants um, and we're going to shut down something like 100 inefficient coal plants. Um, and it's saying, oh, we'll retrofit them with CCS. We'll do other things so we can still meet our targets. But at the end of the day, when you look at their plans, it's just definitely not on track to meeting Paris Agreement's targets. And it's an interesting one for any kind of perspectives you want on dealing with import-dependent countries. I mean, this is this is an island that has to pull a lot of stuff in from other places. Um, and you can build up renewables, you can build up other things, but this is still a tension it's just going to have to deal with, I don't know, until hydrogen gets very cost-effective, until other things, you know, happen. Um, at the same time as talking about what it's going to do with those 100 plants that are inefficient, shutting them down and building new, uh, they're also talking about how they're going to step back from financing coal power in the developing world, namely Southeast Asia. Um, it's saying, like Japan is saying that it's only going to export the most efficient, ultra super critical generators, and then it's only going to ship those to countries that have clear decarbonization strategies. But there's a big loophole in this, um, saying that these restrictions don't apply to any of those projects in the planning stage. And, you know, gave you an idea on the numbers on that at the very beginning of this this discussion. I mean, the, the numbers are large. And so it doesn't necessarily help in the short term. Um, this isn't a sudden about face. This is a loose commitment to moving slightly away from something at some point. Well, and as we've learned through, you know, the pandemic, but other things like, I mean, the health impacts from these coal plants, from local transportation emissions, et cetera, are just incalculable. I mean, it's just, it's one of those things where, you know, everyone is just, um, you know, magically gotten, you know, healthier as, you know, industrialization has, uh, has gone down from the pandemic. And I just think Southeast Asia is one of those places where, you know, two thirds of the world population lives in, you know, sort of these regions and um, that are, you know, still dependent on coal. And um, we're just not going to be able to stave off the worst impacts of climate change um, without figuring out how to finally put uh, the nail in the coffin on coal. No, I completely agree with you. When we look at, so I've been working with the Lancet Countdown on Climate Change and Health for six years or so, and this is 120 researchers around the globe who look at these health effects. And, you know, we're pretty measured in terms of recommendations, but if you look at it from a health perspective, the recommendation is to shut down coal globally now. It's to move away from it, pick up other things, because the health impacts of these systems are so huge on populations around them and then globally, because the air pollution doesn't just stay right next to the power plant. So I, I agree with you. Like there's if you care about health, you're going to move away from coal. Well, let's talk about your public health expertise and go into the third topic now. So turns out that the toxicity of air pollution is way worse than we thought. The accumulating research now shows that air pollution affects nearly every major organ in the body, damaging them from before birth through old age. So what happens when you combine the most cutting-edge health science with lots of new, low-cost, renewable energy? Well, you get a blockbuster picture. That's what. A team of researchers from Duke University and NASA for the first time ran the numbers on the health benefits of meeting the Paris Climate Accord, and they found that $37 billion uh, could be saved from avoided hospital emergency room visits alone. And we already knew that, you know, sooty pollutants are correlated with CO2 emissions, but it turns out that we could 
pay for the energy transition, the clean energy transition, on just the air quality benefits alone. And as Melissa said, this is an area that she has been focused on. So, Melissa, summarize this new research for us. What is it telling us? Yeah, so... I get asked often, how how do I smile and laugh so much when I study what I'm about to go through, uh, which is air pollution and its <laughs> effects on our health? And I'm like, well, it's really depressing when you look at the numbers. I mean, you look at the new evidence, which I'll go to in a second, that was presented by this professor from Duke University. Um, but the, the great thing is we have solutions to it, which is the other part of this research that comes out. So this testimony that we're talking about was by Professor Drew Schindel from Duke University's Nicholas School of the Environment. He's also a lead author on both IPCC, recent IPCC reports. Um, and what's different in this analysis is Really, he's integrating our understanding, which has really increased over time, of just how bad air pollution is for us, and then the cost of doing something about it. So on the first point, um, if you look at new evidence on air pollution and also the effects of heat, because he incorporates that, but that's a, a minor impact overall, we have really upped our game in terms of what we understand about what air pollution does to our bodies. So as you said, Stephen, I mean, it is clear to us now that you know your body is affected by air pollution when you're still in the womb. So this starts day one and continues for your entire life and it's cumulative. So if I had grown up in Southern California um, during the same years I was alive versus where I grew up, military bases all over the place, I would probably live a dozen years shorter than I will growing up where I grew up because I wasn't exposed to cumulative effects of air pollution when my lungs were developing as a child. And this is the kind of evidence that you know, we had bits and pieces of it, but now we have these long, we call them cohort studies, where we study people over many decades of their life and follow them, and we control for all types of circumstances to try to tease out what does air pollution do to our bodies. And, you know, you need 20 or 30 years to do these types of things. You need to follow people through adolescence and into adulthood, and we have a lot more of that evidence. So this report goes through what would the immediate benefits be if we moved away from fossil fuels. So that's reductions in air pollution. And then what the longer term impacts would be if we lessened the effects of climate change. And there's a few interesting points here. One is that it is overwhelmingly um, positive in the cost benefit analysis. So we get way more benefits than costs um, if we move away from fossil fuels, even if we ignore the existence of climate change. You do not need to believe in climate change or to factor in any of its effects, and you still get a net positive from shifting away from fossil fuels. Um, Second, if the United States actually acts and does this transition from a health perspective, um, it will realize a huge portion of the benefits, enough to actually still make it cost effective, even if it acts alone. And a lot of this cost effectiveness comes from the fact that low and zero carbon fuels are so much cheaper now than they were 20 years ago. So we've got these parallels, improving our understanding of what air pollution does to us, and also a lot of cost declines that makes it cheaper to act. So Jigger, ever since we started this show, you have focused a lot on air pollution and the health consequences of developing renewable energy and not just on climate change. We're obviously very focused on the climate change picture now. The science is becoming clearer. But this research shows us we don't even need to be focused on climate change to talk about the benefits of this energy transition. Like that's, that's pretty important. What are the consequences of this research? Yeah, who would have predicted this? <laughs> Only the National Academy of Sciences in 2009, Harvard University in 2010. I mean, Lord, I think that the the part that I think upsets me the most about this kind of research is that... Wait, it upsets you? This is great research. No, the research is fantastic. But what upsets me about its implementation is that we all look to the federal government to solve these problems. 
and they actually need to get solved at the local level. So like uh, the city of Chicago determined that its direct health benefits from each electric bus is about $40,000 a year. It makes the payback on electric bus less than five years. It's like, you know, and so every mayor, every state governor who isn't mandating EV buses right now basically is not reading research and aligning their policies to the science, right? Here in Washington, D.C., like WMATA refuses to put in EV buses, right? And it's it just, it upsets me to no end. New York City, by the way, is no better, right? When you think about taxi cab emissions, when you think about ride-hailing emissions. For me, I don't think this is about coal, although we can talk about it. I think a lot of it's about transportation emissions too, right? And that's where you have ground-level ozone. It's it's amazing to me how many people are encouraged to live next to highway interchanges because it shortens their commute to work and they're giving their kids asthma. And it's just, it's one of those things where this whole issue upsets me so much because local politicians literally are allowed to keep their head in the sand and not acknowledge any of this research. And so I just think, you know, like progressive, you know, county commissioners like I have in Montgomery County won't do anything on transportation emissions. Washington state just showed the rest of the country that it has a legal basis by which to ban internal combustion cars without any involvement from the federal government. Right now, it may be like, you know, challenged in the courts, but for now, most legal experts think that the law that Washington state is looking to pass is actually fully legal. And so now every state, if they wanted to, could ban internal combustion engines and say by 2030, you have to all be EVs, right? And you now have research to justify the cost in doing so, right? It's it's just one of those things that upsets me so much because healthcare as a percentage of GDP in this country has gone from, let's say, 9%, which is sort of the average in the OECD uh, countries, to something like 17% in this country. And our GDP is large in this country. So that means it's like an extra trillion dollars that we spend on healthcare that we could be spending on other things that make people happier. Yeah, and this is one of those disconnects when we're paying for healthcare and from a completely different bucket, as it were. So we're paying for treating the symptoms that are caused by a different sector. And so I know when I was working in the United Kingdom, conversations, quite bluntly, were a lot easier a lot of the time because they're looking at their nationalized healthcare system and saying, we're in a tough place. How the heck can we save money? And I'm like, look, the numbers are so clear on this. You want to double down all your support that you possibly can on reducing air pollution, especially in urban areas. But I think you, I want to pull on one thread of something you said, Jigger, um, which is around like you were talking about people commuting and wanting to live near highway interchanges to make that convenient. Another thing in all of this are some very strong equity issues. So when you talk about where pollution is distributed, like we all are affected by it, all of us, nobody escapes, but we are certainly not affected equally. And so if you're black or Latino, like you are tend to live in neighborhoods where you have a lot more pollution. And so this is a problem where we know the solutions, we can deploy those solutions, and we can do it quickly. Um, And the effects of that, the positive effects of that will be particularly felt if we do it right by these populations that are being, I mean, just hit over the head with pollution right now. So you talked about transportation. One thing I point out is that even if you electrify a personal vehicle, you don't eliminate pollution from it. And I'm not talking about the power plant that powers it. I'm talking about the brakes. I'm talking about the roadwear. So where your tires connect with the road, you're still going to have pollution. And so all of these solutions about how do we 
look at air pollution and how do we factor that in in the health effects and actually build out our public transportation systems, build out efficiency in our systems that reduce pollution overall as we transition. It's mostly co-benefits, but we have to be really thoughtful about it. Well said. And when I was on the board of Greenpeace, um, one of the things we realized was that the support for environmental positions, particularly air pollution-related positions, was far higher in the Hispanic community than the broader community um, at large. I mean, white populations, et cetera. I think that we, you know, sort of allow these issues to be characterized as, you know, only having support from white communities to our peril. Um, in fact, you know, I think that Hispanic communities are more active and we're are, are critical to a lot of the uh, local activism that, you know, was used to shut down the coal plants in downtown Chicago, you know, in many of these places. And so, I, you know, part of, I think, uh, what we miss with some of these equity conversations is that it's not, you know, sort of white communities going in and saving black and Hispanic communities. It's more that these communities themselves want the ability to, you know, improve the situation around where they live. And um, there's all these structural challenges that politicians are throwing in the way that, you know, sort of slow down that progress. Yeah. And Drew Shindell testifying before Congress ended with a call saying it would be unconscionable to realize these benefits could be obtained and to not obtain them. Uh, the final piece of this is is um, that this research seems to short circuit an argument in U.S. politics, which is, well, even if we develop this ambitious climate plan, China and India and others are not going to do it. So if we go it alone, then it's just going to destroy our economy. Uh, but in fact, Shindell's team found that it is worth acting alone if we just realize the public health benefits. So, Melissa, talk about that argument. Yeah, so I, I love this and I love focusing on it. It's it's something that is important because it's important to acknowledge that folks say, why would I pay for everything if I, you know, if nobody else acts, if I'm not going to realize benefits, why would I put that money forward? And this research clearly shows and adds to a, a growing body of research that says that. It's certainly true that global action is required if we want to fully tackle climate change. But the near-term benefits of reduced air pollution um, will come from our own domestic policies. So we say, like, our domestic policies, actions we can take right now, will help us here right now. So it's not a matter of, oh, well, when everyone else acts, I'll act because it's not in my interest until then. This research is very clear about that. It's in our interest today to act in absence of what anyone else does. So... If you want to follow the science and the research and save these lives, I mean, you act now. This is like, you know, my favorite uh, cartoon on climate change where they're at the climate summit and the guy goes, you know, what if it's a big hoax and we create a better world for nothing? Oh, I love this. <laughs> yeah, I love this one. I love it. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, my. Okay, let's wrap up the show. we got our free electrons now. What's new interesting novel that we're reading about, thinking about. Uh, Melissa, what's yours? So I've got one that's well in my wheelhouse and one that uh, 
is outside of my wheelhouse, but I love reading about it stuff. It's interesting. You're just like Catherine. You're always bringing multiple free electrons. <laughs> um, so the first one's outside of my wheelhouse. It's about uh, the potential to boost U.S. unemployment numbers by plugging orphaned and abandoned wells. So this is a, a report that came out. It was part of our center, but it was partnered with Resources for the Future. And I just found it fascinating, in part because I had no idea the sheer number of abandoned and orphaned wells that are around the country, some of which date back to the 19th and early 20th century. This is amazing to me. Um, and it's it's just cool analysis that looks at, okay, who's out of work right now? And it's fair to say that we have a lot of labor and equipment sitting around. So let's put them to work doing things that are you know good for us to do. The second one is much more in my wheelhouse. And it's a report by Dr. Joshua Rhodes, who's a researcher at UT Austin's Energy Institute. Um, he just dropped this cool report on the economic impact of renewable energy in rural Texas. And I feel like often in our transition discussions, we can focus on urban areas. Um, a lot of the country is rural. A lot of the world is rural. And so actually going through the numbers, I mean, he was calling up county judges, talking to ranchers. Um, and I'm just going to say my favorite quote real quick. Um, it's about cows. <laughs> but it says, uh, this is a quote from Lewis Brooks Jr., who runs a ranch in Nolan County, Texas. And he said, the cows love wind turbines. They walk around them all day and follow the shadow that they create. We now have good roads on our land because of the wind farms, and that makes it easier to take care of our cattle. My experience with the wind industry has been super. It's not perfect, but I wish we had more wind turbines on our land. Um, in particular, as we go through COVID and unemployment rises, I mean, the tax revenues from these farms, I just, I, I really like this report. I think it's fantastic. Jigger, what's yours? So I want to just comment on the back and forth with the DNC. Um, it is something that I just find so weird that I just have to comment on it. So during the Obama administration, the G7 agreed to phase out all fossil fuel subsidies globally. Now, nobody's done anything about it, but they agreed to do it. Then in the summer of 2018, the DNC voted to not take any money from fossil fuel companies. In August of 2018, they reversed course because they were like, well, we don't want to like, you know, uh, put ourselves at a disadvantage. Then Joe Biden and Kamala Harris both separately uh, campaigned on getting rid of fossil fuel subsidies. The Sanders campaign and others worked together to make sure that that got into the Democratic platform. Somehow, two days ago, it was stripped out of the platform. And the Biden campaign's like, we're still, we still believe that we should get rid of fossil fuel subsidies. And the Bernie guys are like, well, we don't know what happened in the language. And the DNC basically is not commenting. I honestly don't understand why this is so controversial. Why can't we just say we need to eliminate fossil fuel subsidies in like every platform? It's something that everyone seems to agree with, except for Tom Perez over at the DNC. You know, in the 2012 political cycle, I can remember that Democrats were kind of afraid to talk about climate change. Um, the polling showed that people actually like wanted politicians to talk about climate change. And it, 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 at, at the worst, it wouldn't turn voters off. And at best, it would mobilize people. And some of the polling that I've seen recently shows that people actually respond well to holding oil and gas companies accountable taking money from fossil fuel companies or reducing subsidies to fossil fuel companies. And so this is another example of, I think, the the DNC being disconnected from what a lot of people are saying. So it's um, it'll be interesting to see how that comes together. No, totally. And when we've had Emily Aiken on from Heated a couple of times, and she makes this point brilliantly. 
All right. Well, mine is completely unenergy related. Uh, I've talked a little bit about my mental health uh, during COVID, and I've seen some, you know, uh, dramatic improvements in mental health actually dur- during the shutdown. Um, but still, some weeks are really tough, and I think like a, like most people out there, particularly those with families, this time is just extraordinarily difficult. And so I don't get that many opportunities to do things aside from um, family time and work. But occasionally, I'll go just do some stuff that is brainless. And I've been really into the Rube Goldberg machines, the Rube Goldberg machines that everyone is building during COVID. Oh, I love it. And there's not really <laughs> yeah. one, there may be a central place where people are going, but if you just like type it into Google, Rube Goldberg machines COVID, you'll see all the different contraptions that people are making in their homes from like April onward. And if you just click a YouTube video, you'll probably get lost in many of these. And they're so good. And, you know, I'll, I'll, sit and watch those for about 10 minutes and that's how I spend some of my time relaxing when I'm when I'm not writing uh but I I just really encourage people to go check them out if you need something uh, that will can give you a little bit of glee not to be awesome. too crazy about this but you know that is how a coal plant works in the United States right like it's just a big <laughs> Rube Goldberg contraption you get coal from Powder River Basin you ship it to Georgia to be able to meet your your, you know, requirements for air quality. I'm sorry, I'm dying. You then Keep put a scrubber it. on the top to take out the rest of it. That <laughs> then creates coal fly ash, which you're like, what do I do with this? Let's make it into drywall, right? And then you, ba- like, the whole thing <laughs> is just like oh. laughable, like how we actually take all these things and like make other side products out of it because we can't stop burning coal. So all the jokes aside, though. It's pretty technologically neat. Let's suspend all the health stuff, all the climate stuff. Like, man, have you ever been to a coal plant? Like, it's that's some cool tech. Oh that was some cool Lord. engineering that went I, into it. I am not supporting that, even though I'm an engineer as well. <laughs> I, I think it is what you call useless tech. It is like, it is basically like, we should just not do this in the first place. But if we are going to do this, let's figure out 83 ways to solve the original sin. Uh, I feel like we could have an entire, entire session on that one and just talking about that. But I we will, should have an session will bite on my... that. <laughs> I agree. In place of that, just go to YouTube and, and watch the Rube Goldberg machines. Also very cool. It, it, you'll love them. <laughs> Melissa Law is our guest co-host. Thank you for joining us the last few weeks. This was so much fun. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me, guys. And uh, Catherine, look forward to hearing you next week. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, we have a live show on August 25th. That's just coming up a few days from now. So you can still sign up for that and it's free. And we'll be uh, in our homes as usual, talking about a wide range of things. We had a bunch of listener questions about technology come in. So we'll talk about some areas of tech that we don't often talk about on this show. We're also going to talk a little bit more about like the state of play in politics, that disconnect between the DNC and Biden's campaign, what Kamala Harris brings to the platform and how climate donors are influencing the election. So we'll get a state of play there. We'll have a nice balance between policy and tech. Um, And again, that is Dr. Melissa Lott. She is a senior research scholar at the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. And Jigger Shaw is our regular co-host. He'll be with us next week during the live show. Thanks for joining us during vacation, sir. Love it. And that's going to do it. The Energy Gang is a co-production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. Thanks, Ingrid. Sean Marquand mixes the show. 
And uh, I am the executive producer. Thanks for listening. If you want to support the show and help us grow, tell your friends or family about us, just email links, you know, send us, send a word out on social media or give us a rating and review at Apple. Those are all really helpful ways to support the show and spread the word about the energy transition. And we, of course, can be found anywhere you get your podcasts. This is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. We'll talk to you soon.